0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis.
1: Hello and thanks for joining us here for episode 518 with Dr. Gleb Zeperski. Gleb is talking about why not to go with your gut and how to avoid making disastrous decisions. So I'm thankful for him and I'm thankful for you as Thanksgiving is roughly now-ish based on the release of this episode. You might be listening it months to the future. That's cool too. So so thank you. I appreciate you. Even if you went to the University of Michigan, we're really harsh on Michigan uh, folks in this episode. And I just want to let you know, it's all in good fun. We're just razzing you and tweaking you a little bit. Uh, there are great people that I really respect and I, I like from the University of Michigan, and, and we're just joking around here a little bit. So all in good fun, because <laughs> we, we're pretty harsh. Anyway, you're going to learn one, the biggest decision-making mistake people make, two, three, handy debiasing techniques, and three, five questions to guide everyday decisions. So if you want to see the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, it's over at com slash F518, or just tap the expansion of this episode note or description in your podcast app player and, and tap that all the faster. Here's Gleb's story. He's known as the disaster avoidance expert. Dr. Gleb Sapersky protects leaders from disasters by developing the most effective decision-making strategies via his consulting, coaching, and training from disaster avoidance experts. A cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, Dr. Sapersky writes for Inc., Time, and CNBC. A best-selling author, his new book, available on Amazon and bookstores everywhere, is Never Go With Your Gut. Big thanks to Gleb for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Gleb. Gleb, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome At Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for
2: inviting me, Pete. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, I'd love to learn all about, you You have an interesting brand for your business. It's called Disaster Avoidance Experts.
2: Uh, Tell us, first of all, what do you mean by disaster? What are we avoiding here? Any sort of things that seriously impact your bottom line in a negative way. Now, that might mean things like having a key employee leave, or, having your website crash unexpectedly, <laughs> or having uh, lacking a succession plan as I mentioned for let 's say what happens if you have a disability and you can 't work for a while? What happens then that 's kind of you know if your key client leaves and you're really dependent on that client that 's a problem so that 's one area of disasters things that seriously impact your bottom line negatively. Another area of disasters, which people think about less, is, but is just as impactful, is when you don't take advantage of opportunities. So let's say your competitor goes bankrupt and you have all your money devoted and resources devoted to your current business plan. That means you can't take advantage of the competitor's bankruptcy to get their employees. You know, key employees on board with you. You can't take advantage of the competitor's bankruptcy to get their clients if all of your money and resources are devoted to something else. Or other sort of opportunities to open up? Let's say the political situation. You know, you have some tariffs going on, so uh, people are changing their supply chains, and you have an opportunity to be the new supplier. But you're already locked into contracts that keep you uh, with other, so w- with people you're currently supplying to. That's another problem. So people don't think about missing opportunities as disasters, but they could be just as disastrous as uh, uh, threats. So that's what I mean by disasters.
1: Okay. And so uh, I'm intrigued then. What, in your client experience, would you estimate is the biggest disaster that you've helped somebody avoid?
2: Oh, the biggest disaster. Well that 's a tough one because it really depends on how you think about uh, word. do you think about jobs or careers? I do a lot of coaching for executives, which includes coaching on their careers so i 'll give you an example uh, There was this executive who was thinking about making a job switch to create an enterprise to be a startup leader and We talked through the situation. He was excited, he wanted to jump, make the jump. We talked through the situation kind of you know and he, what was he excited about? What were his long term plans? and what uh, we discovered was that he was excited about the idea of a startup he was excited about kind of the you know the financial potential of a startup the impact on the world but when i talked to him about hey you know do you know what it's like to work in a startup have you ever worked in that environment turned out that he wasn't really prepared for the chaos and stress uh, that is involved in a startup and especially the failures When you start up a business, as any entrepreneur knows, you have a ton of failures, not the whole business itself, but when you're trying to figure things out, how are your systems going to work, how are your processes going to work, who are going to be your clients? He really wasn't prepared for that. He was very much a perfectionist and he took failure poorly. So he really wasn't prepared for the chaotic entrepreneurial nature of a startup and especially the failure of it. So he decided not to go for it. He he stayed in corporate America and... Spend the rest of his career there, he was quite happy and he would have been very stressed out if he went for a startup. So, that's one example with a personal career move. Now, another career, another situation would be with a company. There was a company that I was consulting with, which was a mid sized manufacturing company here in the Midwest, about 2,000 people, and they were going to buy another company. Of about 1,500 people, another mid sized manufacturing, this time in the Southwest. And so what happened was that they really were excited about buying it. They looked at the company, they looked at the company's financials. Financials look good. They looked at the company's products products look good, they would fulfill a gap that the buying company currently had. But what they didn't think about is that they were didn't really think about the internal systems and processes of this company, the company culture. Now, I worked with a company that was my client for a while to get their client, to get their internal culture more team-oriented and more flat, less hierarchical. But the company that they were going to buy was much more hierarchical and its culture was much more hierarchical, top down, and its internal systems and processes were much more hierarchical and top down. So, honestly, they would have really clashed in a really bad and harmful way. And I've seen companies do, mer- I mean, if you think about mergers and acquisitions, you look at the research on this topic, about 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail. So this would have definitely been one of those 80% that failed. And I'm very thankful that my client decided to avoid that merger and uh, went stepped away from it. So those are two disasters that I help leaders and businesses avoid.
1: Okay. Well, and so I'd love to hear then, in terms of, of humans and decision-making, what have been some of the most striking discoveries you've
2: made about how we go about decision-making and, and often poorly? I think the most important thing that I've discovered and I've been doing this, just to be clear, for over 20 years uh, in consulting, coaching, training on decision-making. I went, so I've been doing this for a while. I've also went into higher academia. I researched this topic. I'm, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. And so, I've researched this at the research level doing peer-reviewed research. What I found was that really surprising and very... Mm, bothersome was that people very much tend to go with their gut with their intuitions they what they feel is what they do so they equate the feeling of rightness and correctness and intuitiveness that this is the right thing to do i feel it in my gut they equate that with truth and rightness and what's best for their bottom line and what's best for their long-term goals. And that's terrible. Our gut is about for the savanna environment. It's about for small tribes of you know 15 people to 150 people and this saber-toothed tiger response when we need to flee from a saber-toothed tiger. That's what our gut is adapted for. We are the descendants of those who jumped at 100 shadows and successfully avoided that one saber-toothed tiger. In our current environment, that's really bad to jump at a hundred shadows. We get so much stress, so much problems. There are so many people who are anxious and depressed because of these excessive reactions from our gut. But people still trust their gut, they trust their feelings, they trust their intuitions, and they make really bad mistakes as a result of it. The most fundamental thing I convey to my clients that has helped them so much is to distance themselves from this feeling of rightness, from this feeling of comfort, When you have comfort, when you're comfortable about a decision, that's the time to most suspect your decision because you're often going to make the most wrong decision when you feel most comfortable with it. It's counterintuitive, but that's the natural, that's the civilized thing to be. Just like it's counterintuitive to eat with our fork uh, and knife. You know, we had to learn how to eat with forks and knives. Now it would be very weird if you don't eat, you know, fish and steak with your fork and knife. But, that's something you had to learn to do, but we still make the decisions as though we eat with our hands.
1: Intriguing, so much there. so I think that, that makes a lot of sense is to to note there's a there's a wide distinction between the feeling of rightness and and truth, and often when you're the most comfortable that is is not an indicator that it's right. I guess especially in the sense of when you're trying to do something new and different and, 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 challenging, or that just sort of stretches you in some way that will naturally be uncomfortable. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering then, so are you, are you saying then that intuition has, has no place or, or how would you uh, contextualize and position intuition in the scheme of decision-making?
2: So intuition is a complex concept and we have to separate two things here. We have to separate gut reactions which have to do with our evolved tribal intuitions and that's kind of coming from our instinct, from our savage primitive environment. That's when we were babies and we uh, responded to things. That's intuition from that's inborn that's genetic and that's really really harmful in the modern world in the bothered business environment you don't want to use that genetic inborn intuition that tribal response where you think where you look at a person and if the person seems like that person is like you you will like that person much more that's the halo effect where we tend to like other people who look like us who think like us who feel like us who have this, you know, our color, skin color, and so on, who have our politics, our value sets. That's, very dangerous. The, and of course, we don't like people who don't have that. That's called the horns effect. Now, in the current business environment, it's very bad to use this tribal sensibility to make decisions because then you'll hire other people. Let's say you're a business leader. You'll hire other people who are like you and then you'll be making very bad decisions because you'll be all thinking you're like and you won't question each other's decisions. Same thing if you're a solopreneur. You'll be collaborating with other people who are like you and you will not be getting the huge benefit of collaborating with different people. So that's kind of one area where you want to very much be aware of these inborn intuitions now where intuitions are helpful here's the area where they're helpful they're helpful where you have learned over time to make good quick Effective decisions. For example, right now, you know, pretty much any professional has learned how to look for their email and quickly separate the spam from the quality email. You know, you don't need to think about that for a long time. You just say, "Okay, this this looks like spam." A number, leaders, people who are in leadership positions, have learned how to organize of judgment and decision-making delegation effectively how could you delegate effectively to other people you can do that effectively now but that's a learned habit now people who have been working effectively for a long time have learned good productivity and organization systems they're really productive they know how to do that but again they had to learn these things so now they feel intuitive just like eating with your fork and knife feels intuitive but what they are is healthy learned mental habits. It's kind of like driving a car. You had to learn how to drive a car. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. You know, I remember driving, uh, learning how to drive a car myself. I failed my first driving test. I couldn't pass it the first time. Now now I I can drive a car very easily and it feels like I'm driving an autopilot. It feels like I'm using my intuition, but I want, I'm actually using is healthy learned mental habits. So you want to differentiate those savage primitive instincts from those healthy learned civilized mental habits, that natural state from the civilized state. And so the intuition is useful when you've been doing the same thing in a specific domain for a long time and you've been correct at it. What you don't want to do is apply to new domains. So, for example, many small business owners trust their ability to hire people based on interviews. You know, they have someone come in, they talk to this person, they hire this person or not. Extensive research has shown that that's a terrible decision. That's a really bad strategy for hiring people because they don't have enough experience in hiring people. They don't really know how to do it effectively. And some people might be offended by you when I say that. But, hey, I'm just telling you what the research shows. Another area is when you sell your business. When people selling their business make many, many, many mistakes because they haven't done this before and they haven't done this often. Same thing in mergers and acquisitions. They haven't done this often. So they don't know what to watch out for. So, any new area, anything you haven't done before, anything important and significant, anything emotionally salient, anything that really pulls at your emotions, you want to be especially aware of and not use your intuitions.
1: Well, I guess I'm curious in particular about intuition when it comes to you know, let's say the matter of, of trusting another person. Like, it seems like the, they have a proposal for you, you know, hey, maybe, maybe it's a, a business-related thing in terms of, hey, okay, hey, there's this new vendor, they can provide, you know, this thing at this price, and they seem to have all of the right answers and, and check the right boxes based on your criteria. But there's just something inside you that says, you know what, I just, I kind of just don't trust this guy. I think he's gonna not deliver the goods. <laughs> is that a particular type of intuition? And and what's your, your take on that one?
2: Yeah, that's that's bad. That's uh, if you don't know this person for a long time, it's likely that it's your tribal intuitions. You know, if this guy is a slick salesman, and uh, he's able to sell you, it's because it's a famous salesperson technique to make it look like and appear like he is similar to you. They try to mimic you. They try to use your wording. So this person is most likely just not a very good salesperson and doesn't fit your idea of what it looks like your tribal members should be. So you don't want to trust your instincts around new people. This is going to offend a lot of people. It already has. The research has offended a lot of people and it's okay. I'm just telling you what the research says. You shouldn't trust your instincts around new people. You need to Look at that person. And say, "Hey, is this person in any way significantly different from me? Different in race, ability, gender, sexuality, politics, the way this person speaks, this person's background." Well, I'll give you an, uh, an interesting example. So, I was doing a presentation for over a hundred hr professionals at a diversity inclusion conference here in columbus ohio and columbus ohio is of course famous as the home of the ohio state buckeyes our football team you know go (laughs) bucks and it's very very popular around here so our big rival is the university of michigan up north and uh, the wolverines not very popular around here
1: yeah those michigan people i went to the university of Illinois. It's fun to hate people who went to Michigan. No offense, Michigan uh, listeners. There you go. Let's hate Michigan. I agree. (laughs) Not everybody, but, you know, some of them are really obnoxious. And so
2: you got to stick it to them. Please continue. I know. know. (laughs) I'm I'm joking. But anyway, what I asked these HR professionals who are leaders in diversity inclusion here in Columbus, Ohio was, hey, would you hire somebody who is a University of Michigan fan? So out of those hundred people... (laughs) only three people indicated that they would hire a university of michigan fan and these are experts in diversity and inclusion <laughs> they would not hire a michigan fan just because that person is a michigan fan that would exclude that person from hiring so that shows you the importance of tribalism in something so you know i mean i everyone likes to hate in michigan fans but Honestly, it's kind of a trivial thing. Which team you root for, right? It's just about which. To, it doesn't really matter for your work performance. Meaning, from well, that,
1: and in that context, I wonder if they were sort of afraid to, you know, raise their hand because people would look at them and go, Ugh.
2: No, no, no. I mean, and that, in, that's indicative. That's why they wouldn't hire this person, right? Because uh, they know that other people would be like, "Why the heck did you hire this University of Michigan fan at their job?"
1: You know, I would hire them and, and tell them not to uh, not to let people know. No.
2: <laughs> that they're a Michigan fan. It's not a viable scenario. It's not a scenario which we should have. But that's the way our brains work. So just because someone's from the University of Michigan. So we should not trust our intuitions about new people. So that's, that's the mm-hmm. critical, important thing. What, uh, so what you want to do, if this is a new person, you want to bring in someone quite different from yourself if you are kind of serious about using this person as a new vendor and use this external trusted advisor to evaluate this person and see what they mm-hmm. say.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense in terms of, you know the, you know, and then the intuition still is serving a function. You know, it, it has given you... Some bit of information, which may be confirmed or denied, uh, that uh, probes you to go a little further you know, in your investigation
2: versus if it weren't there, you might be like, all right, we're good to go. You know, no need. And that's something to be afraid of also, because if this person is a slick salesperson and sells you a bill of goods, if you feel very comfortable with this person, you want to step back and see if this person is using s- typical salesman techniques like copying you, mimicking you, echoing you these are techniques that you can learn about and protect yourself from. But if you don't know it, if you just go with what's comfortable for you and you don't protect yourself from this comfort feeling techniques, then uh, you will be sold a bill of goods.
1: Right. Okay. Well, so so that's handy. Well, then let's talk now about cognitive bias. First, could you define that for listeners who are not familiar with the term? And, and then you know list out just a couple of you know, what you've observed to be the most pervasive and disastrous cognitive biases in the workplace.
2: So, cognitive biases are mistakes that we make because of how our brain is wired. A lot of it is due to our evolutionary heritage, like I mentioned before tribalism, the fight or flight response, other aspects are due to just our information processing is imperfect. Just the way we process information, our brain is far from perfect. And that is why we have systematic errors that cause us to deviate away from the perfect decision making. So the perfect decisions are decisions that most benefit in the workplace. So just in the workplace, most benefit your bottom line. In other life spheres it's going to be decisions that most benefit your life goals or your professional goals or whatever goals you have. So that's the perfect decisions, the ones that can give you the most benefit. Cognitive biases are systematic errors that cause us to deviate away from these perfect decisions. I gave you an example before already of the halo effect and the horns effect. Another common cognitive bias that uh, f- a lot of people get struck by very problematically, is called the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is an interesting one. Because it's where we tend to assume that everything will go according to plan. We invest all our resources. I mentioned before, what are disasters? Disasters are when we don't anticipate risks and when we don't anticipate opportunities. So we invest all our resources into our plan. And when Problems happen or opportunities happen. We don't have enough resources to take care of them and we don't anticipate, we don't look for these opportunities or threats in advance and we don't, uh, we aren't able to address them because of that. So that's the planning fallacy. And we, you know, you'll often hear the phrase, Failing to plan is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan is planning to fail. This is a common phrase. It's you know very common. Just like go with your gut is a common phrase. They're both wrong. They're both problems. You don't want to go with your gut and you don't want to think that failing to plan is planning to fail because our plans, we tend to make perfect plans. So what you want to think about is never go with your gut and for the other one, you want to think failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. What you want to do is plan for what kind of problems might come up and address these problems in advance. And the same thing for opportunities. What kind of opportunities might come up and address these opportunities in advance, as well as reserve some resources for unexpected threats and unexpected opportunities. So that's the planning fallacy. That's one. Another one that a lot of business leaders uh, run into is overconfidence bias. Overconfidence bias is our tendency to be way too confident about our decisions, and honestly, the higher up a leader is, the more experienced somebody is, the more they tend to be, the more they tend to be confident, and the more biased they tend to be. The more ex- excessively confident they tend to be. Not everyone, but this is the general tendency. So. For example, we found research that if somebody says, "I'm 100% confident about this," yes, you know, I'll bet the company on this, I'll bet my career on this," they're only going to be right about 80% of the time. 80% of the time.
1: Oh, interesting. Those who say when I'm 100% sure about this, are right 80% of the time.
2: That's correct. And that's horrible because they mm-hmm. lose the company and they lose their careers. So, you know, 20% of the time. So, this is very dangerous for people who say they're 100% confident. Definitely this thing, just because of the way our brain works. So, we have to be very careful to be, develop a sense of humility. And this is really important. Humility is such an underappreciated business asset, business emotion. We need to be able to have this sense of humility, have the sense of, oh, hey, you know, I might be wrong and it's Okay. Let me step back and let me evaluate the situation. Let me be less confident than I intuitively am. Let me ask others for strategies. And my book, Talks Never Go With Your Gut, goes for a whole bunch of strategies that you can use to evaluate the situation, address threats, seize opportunities. So you want to be more humble. And that is one of the the critical emotions that you want to develop in order to get yourself to use these strategies effectively.
1: And so you've got a a number of a dozen uh, de-biasing techniques. Could you share, you know, what's perhaps the most uh, one or two powerful or efficient means of uh, really helping uh, remove some bias and improving the the decision-making of your professional?
2: Well, I'll share a very quick one and then some more complex ones. The quickest pro one is Counting to 10. You know, your mom probably told you, count to 10 before you do something, before you do something emotional, especially when you're angry. And that actually works with the recent research has shown that counting to 10, delaying your decision-making works quite effectively for day-to-day decisions. So that's one really good, useful strategy that you can effectively deploy. Counting to 10, you know, taking the time to think about it at least for 10 seconds before day-to-day decisions. So that's One. Another one that uh, many people don't use but is incredibly helpful is making predictions about the future. Again, making predictions about the future. Let's say you are in a meeting of the C-suite and people are saying, hey, you know, this product will go great or this product will not be good at all that you're about to launch. Have everyone make a prediction. Have everyone make, you know, hey, here's how I think it will do in the next six months and make sure that you check back on what happened six months ago. That way you'll calibrate. How well do you think your business, if you're you know solopreneur, is going to do, or if you're the business leader, how well do you think it's going to do? How well do specific aspects of your business How well are they going to do? How well is the client, a specific client, going to be with you? How much will they order? You know, thinking about these things, making predictions about the future, and then check yourself, and you will slowly improve your ability to make good decisions because you'll calibrate yourself over time. So that's another one that I wanted to mention. And another one that I think is incredibly important is to get an outside view well, for to have an external perspective, step back from your current context. So people tend to be greatly overconfident. Business leaders especially tend to be very optimistic. I mean, I, I'm an optimist myself. I tend to be too optimistic. I think the grass is green on the other side of the hill. Things are less risky than they seem. However, what's really helpful for that optimism and overconfidence is stepping back and say, hey, if somebody else was launching a product just like that, how do you think it would work out? You know, what is the... Typical situation for mergers and acquisitions. So, typical situations for mergers and acquisitions is that 80% fail. So, if you're going to merger an acquisition, You shouldn't think that you're better than all the other business leaders who have gone into mergers and acquisitions. You should assume that the most likely situation, four out of five times, you'll fail. So you have to really work hard to make sure that your specific merger or acquisition is going to be so extremely good that it overcomes this very, very high typical rate of very smart people. I mean, business leaders who do mergers and acquisitions are pretty smart people. And you have to make sure that it, that it will not fail and it overcomes a pretty high barrier. So those are three things that I would share with people.
1: All right. And so you also spent a fair bit of time discussing our human tendency to try to minimize loss. And so what's, what's going on
2: there and what should we do about that? Yes, so we have we as human beings tend to minimize loss and that is a big problem because we don't look sufficiently at gains and this is a tendency called loss aversion. So, for example, when somebody let's say has invested their money and the loss aversion the tendency to minimize losses there are a couple of cognitive biases around that. So, for example, when somebody has invested money into some project. Let's say, you know, I, I was working with a client who invested two and a half million into a manufacturing project. And the client was really reluctant to look at the situation and see that the external environment changed, actually changed because of the re, uh, of the recent tariffs. And there was not nearly as much demand for the product anymore. And so, uh, because of the changing of supply chains. And I was talking to this client, I was pointing out the situation, and he, he was really reluctant to let go of his vision of the future. So he didn't want to lose this. He didn't want to, A, lose his vision of the future, So because he invested a lot of emotions of it. He felt a lot of positive emotions of it. And he didn't want to perceive himself as someone who made a mistake, as someone who's a loser. So business leaders, that's one of the worst, worst emotions for business leaders. When I talk, uh, when I do trainings for business leaders and I talk, give these examples, what are you most afraid of? Failure is probably the biggest, biggest, most common thing I hear about. So people don't want to be perceived, fail, they don't want to be perceived as losers. So they are trying to do a lot of things to avoid these losses. And they, throw a lot of good money after bad. So he kept going quite a bit longer with that project than he should have. Eventually, he got out of it, fortunately. But that was a pretty bad investment. Uh, he didn't really, at the time, he made it, it wasn't really terrible. But he te- he put quite a bit more money into it than he should have. And that's a tendency that's called sunken costs, where we tend to sink too much money, too much resources, into after previous resources we have made, because we don't want to feel like losers and we don't want to lose these initial resources. What's much more effective, the strategy to address this loss aversion, sunken costs is to say, hey, okay, these resources, they're lost, let them go. Just from the situation where you are right now, what is the best decision to make for your long-term goals? Whatever your long-term goals are in this uh, professional activities, let's say, for your bottom line. The same thing applies to personal life. I mean, in relationships, so many people sink a lot of their time resources into relationships that really aren't going to work out that they should have cut off a long time ago. So that's a common thing that happens in relationships, unfortunately. So you want to be thinking about, hey, ignoring the previous investments. What's the situation now? Because your previous investments, you might feel bad about them, but it doesn't really matter from that perspective. You want to think about your current position. And from your current position, what kind of steps do you want to take to maximize your long-term future returns in all life areas? And so that's a strategy that you can use to address loss aversion.
1: All right. Well, Glav, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: One of the things I want to mention one uh, make sure is that there, are, there is a technique that people can use to very effectively and quickly address the decision-making problems that we all tend to have. And these are five questions that you can use to avoid decision disasters. So here are the five questions that you should use for everyday decision-making For and you can even use them for major decision-making when you don't have time to do a more thorough technique. First. What important information did I not yet fully consider? You want to especially look for information that goes against your comfort levels, that goes against your intuitions, because this will tend to hide the kind of problematic aspects of your decision. So you look at information that goes against your intuitions especially. Second, what dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases, did I not yet address? And my book, Never Go With Your Gut, goes over the 30 most dangerous ones. Third, And I mentioned this before in the program, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So imagine a little bit, little Pete on your shoulder and think about, you know, what would Pete uh, suggest uh, that you do Uh, or somebody else that you trust who's an objective advisor to you? Now, those are the first three questions that have to do with making the decision. We're transitioning into the last two questions about preventing failure and optimizing success in implementing the decision. First. How have I addressed all the ways this decision can fail? Again, how have I addressed all the ways this decision can fail? Think about all the potential problems, you know, realistic problems you can anticipate, and address them in advance, and the same thing for opportunities. Finally, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? Again, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? You you really should make this information, identify this in advance of implementing the decision, because in the heat of the decision-making implementation, you will tend to, run into situations where you want to oh maybe i should change my mind maybe i should revisit the decision it's much more effective if you already decided what would cause you to revisit the decision or rethink things in advance
1: what i also love about that question is what new information would cause me to revisit this decision is it can reveal if you're a sort of i guess one track mind obsessed mm. like if, like if the answer is nothing this is what we <laughs> must do it's like, well, that's probably a red flag that yeah. uh, <laughs> that uh, there's there should be something that could possibly cause you to re- revisit it. Mm-hmm. And if nothing comes to mind, we, we are probably not done thinking about it yet.
2: Yep. And you're not thinking about it straight is the problem. That mm-hmm. uh, any decision, pretty much any decision can be and should be revisited if you have specific information. And if you can't falsify this uh, decision, if you can't falsify this choice, if you can't say, hey, this would make me change my mind, then you're probably way too overcommitted to this decision.
1: All right. Well, now, can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Sure. I really like Ben Franklin's quote that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's a very insightful quote, and it's something that I live by and I encourage Everyone around me to live by because we tend to spend way too much time dealing with disasters as opposed to (laughs) as opposed to preventing them in advance.
1: All right, and how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research?
2: I really like a study where this was a good study. So there, there were I think it was I don't remember which university it was, and let's say it was a high state where a bunch of students were uh, given a math test as an experiment. You know, they were paid for the math test, and they were paid for how many questions they would get right on the math test. And they were given the opportunity to score themselves. So everyone who was in Ohio State was given the math test. And then there was one student who was obviously cheating, very obviously, very clearly cheating. And this student in one set of experiments was wearing an Ohio State uniform. So just kind of part of the tribe. And at that a uh, set of experiments many many other students cheated a whole bunch of other students cheated now in another set of experiments that student was wearing a university of michigan uniform
1: yeah uh, yeah those cheaters from michigan that that sounds about right yeah exactly
2: <laughs> and pretty much nobody else was cheating at that experiment <laughs> Oh, so much. no one else ended up cheating. They, yeah, they were not else, influenced no. by the the outsider. Influenced by tribalism. Mm-hmm. You know, they felt the first ex- experiment where this person wore an Ohio State uniform. It's like, oh, my tribe is cheating. Therefore, this is a good thing. Therefore, this is appropriate. The second set of experiments is, you know, the enemy is cheating. No, we will not cheat. We will do the true, honest, ethical thing. So it shows us how much we're influenced by tribalism, and so much of this, this is very, very applicable to culture within organizations. So whenever you see people within an organization cheating, it's because this culture induces cheating. Whereas if you see people within an organization being honest, it's all about the culture causing honesty. We're very much influenced by our culture, the people around us much more than we tend to believe we are. And how about a favorite book? Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. This is the seminal book on cognitive biases. I really like it. It's part of that older generation of scholars. So Daniel Kahneman is part of the first generation of scholars who looked at cognitive biases. I really like his work, and I think it's incredibly important as a foundational base for all future work that was done on this topic.
1: And do you recommend a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job?
2: Well, what I have found is that I really like flexible tools that are, and that the flexibility of Trello as an organizational tool. And I'm not being paged by Trello, <laughs> you know, the not an affiliate of Trello in any way. But Trello is a system of essentially a Kanban board where you use a combination of index cards, cards that you move around from different columns. So I use it all the time for my organization and for various projects that I do because it's very flexible and it's kind of pretty intuitive for me to use. It's kind of like index cards. So that's my favorite tool.
1: And how about a favorite habit, something that you do that helps you be more awesome at your job?
2: My favorite habit uh, that's really important is part of, as part of my routine, I always do journaling in the morning about what I learned from the last day and what I'm grateful for and a couple of other things. But that's the essence of the journaling, kind of what I am learned and what I'm grateful for. So the first one, what I learned, helps me keep a constant habit of self-improvement fraud my life, the gratitude, what I'm grateful for helps improve my mood. And we tend to greatly underestimate the importance of mood because mood (laughs) about, so the research on this topic shows that we are about 80 to 90% driven by our emotions, about again, 80 to 90% driven by our emotions to do what we do to make the decisions that we make. So I make sure to take care of my emotions. And that's one of the ways I take care of my emotions by having a gratitude diary.
1: And tell me is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks they quote it back to you often
2: but i tell what i tell you and, and something i mentioned in uh, the uh, presentation in the po- in the podcast earlier is that you want to avoid, avoid, avoid equating the feeling of comfort with trueness. So avoid. Comfort is not true. <laughs> so whatever you feel is comfortable and intuitive is often going to be the worst thing for you to do. So you want to very much question that feeling of comfort and intuitiveness, even if it feels right, even though it feels right. That's exactly the time when you need to most question it in order to make the best decisions going forward.
1: And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Well, they can check out my book, Never Go With Your Gut. They can check out my website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com for blog, videos, podcasts, and so on. And they can check me out on LinkedIn. Connect with me there, please. That's Dr. Gleb Cyporski. So Gleb G-L-E-B, T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y, on LinkedIn. And if you have any questions about anything you heard today, I welcome you to contact me by email at gleb, G-L-E-B, at disasteravoidanceexperts.com, at experts.com.
1: All right, and do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I want you to remember to beware of going with your gut. Going with your gut is a very common piece of advice, It's probably one of the most common pieces of advice, and I want to challenge you to question this piece of advice. It's very dangerous to just go with your gut. It causes you to run into a serious career disasters, serious business disasters, and you don't want that to happen to you, like happens to so many people. Don't trust your gut. That's one thing. And the other part of this that I've also talked about is planning. uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. Don't trust that. Our plans tend to not survive contact with the enemy. And you want to make sure to think that failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. So those are the challenges that I want to give folks.
1: All right. Well, Gleb, it's been lots of fun. I wish you much luck
2: and fun in all of your upcoming decisions. Thank you so much, Peter. I wish you the same. And thank you so much for helping people do awesome other jobs.
1: I appreciated much of what Gleb said, particularly that notion that comfort is not the same thing as truth. These are different phenomena. And particularly when you're looking to challenge yourself or make a decision that might involve a bit of a stretch, you're not going to feel that comfort. Uh, You will, in fact, be leaving your comfort zone, as they say in the biz. So good stuff from Gleb. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F518. One more time, apologies to the Michigan alum. It's all in good fun. I, I, I dig you, and it's all good. And a happy Thanksgiving to the U.S. listeners. Uh, I hope you have a very lovely holiday with friends and family and just meaningful, delicious, uh, fun times. There will be no episode on Friday, as we'll kind of call that a bit of a holiday since folks are off and off then. On Monday, we'll be back with Buster Benson, the first guest who has a poster hanging in my office. It's about cognitive biases. Go figure. And he is talking about why are we arguing, how to disagree well. Uh, Historically, I have had a little Black Friday, you know, Pete's Favorite Things to buy. Uh, If you're interested in that, you can check out some of those historically, but I'd encourage you to check out our, our sponsors as well. If you're looking for gift ideas as the holiday shopping season uh, commences on on the Black Friday. And here's a fun fact for you as well. When you click a link to a book on the website awesomeatyourjob.com, many of them go to amazon.com. And I participate in Amazon Associates, which gives us a a tiny little commission associated with the purchases you make. And it gives me little reports, so I can tell you that awesomeatyourjob.com listeners amongst the most popular items to purchase thus far this year are Data Story, Explain Data and Inspire Action, that's the book we had from guest Nancy Duarte, and then the Getting Things Done workbook. Which is from David Allen. So, fun fact those are two of the, the most popular things that folks have chosen to click from awesomearejob.com to then buy on Amazon. That's it. Looking forward to catching you next time.